land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. This is a podcast by the RASC Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wargent, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to become Australia's most trusted pod, uh, property podcast. Today, I'm in the studio with Amy Linardi. How are you doing? G'day, Chris. Really good. Awesome. Um, and today, we're doing a Q&A episode. Um, three main topics we're going to really discuss. Um, a tricky one, really, you know, how to deal with mortgage brokers and, you know, the ethics and the, the do's and the don'ts and what should you expect, I guess. The second thing we're going to go in a bit of detail on is offset accounts. There's lots of myths and you know, misconceptions and uh, misunderstanding around offset accounts. So we're going to try to really dial it down and and hopefully give you real clarity on how to use them and um, the risks, I guess, with offset accounts. Um, the third thing we're going to talk about a bit, um, if, you, if your situation isn't that vanilla, P-A-Y-G, I've just got a job and I just want to borrow some money, you know, if I'm self-employed or there's something a bit curly about my situation, you know, how does that change lending? So um, Amy's going to be a bit interviewing me today. So um, hopefully I'm up to it. So um, yeah, let's get cracking. I sure am, Chris. And when we receive listener questions and we love getting them and Owen is so organized, he puts them all into a great spreadsheet and then we get to read through the spreadsheet and, and choose the listener questions for the week. And I thought we would have a bit of a theme today here, which is mortgage brokers and loans. So the first question, which I thought was really great, it's it's quite a long question, but it's broken down into a few segments. So the, the overall theme of this question, and it came through from someone who's calling themselves very perplexed, is essentially they met with a mortgage broker and they were just really uncomfortable or unhappy with their experience but they have sort of said that, you know, they're a low income earner and they don't expect that much service because of their income. And first of all, I'm going to say, regardless of your income and regardless of your situation, you should always expect good service. So please don't ever approach a situation dealing with a professional already going into it, thinking you don't deserve good customer mm. service. I'll just start off by saying that. But this person starts off by saying, 
What are some red flags to look out for when dealing with a mortgage broker? What should I be on the lookout for when first speaking to someone? But then within this question, they actually explained what their Mm. experience was with this broker and they've kind of answered their own question because all of these dot points that they mention are all actually red flags and I'm going to read them Mm. out. So this person says, in one phone conversation and a follow-up online meeting, I experienced the following. Firstly, they jumped straight into calculating my maximum borrowing power and the biggest loan I could get without asking me anything at all about what I was looking for or needed or was interested in. They then tried to offer me a five-year fixed rate deal so that I could borrow more within two minutes of the meeting starting. They didn't seem to understand or know anything about any of the shared equity loan schemes or government benefits that were soon to be available. I had to explain or correct them regarding stamp duty in my state. They were late to our meeting and I had to email them to get them online. So, Chris, I don't know about you, but I would say every single one of those points for me would be a red flag when dealing with a mortgage broker. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you get any professional, I mean, being punctual is really important, right? Um, You know, I think the key thing that I guess uh, this broker is conveying to me here is they've really gone down a transactional mindset straight away um, and not focusing on trying to understand your situation and what you're up to and what you're planning on doing. And, um, and I think that's the first thing you really should expect. I think a broker that goes straight to products or straight to maximizing your servicing with a fixed rate loan. I mean, that is that is the nth degree. Like, you know, and that's and only very few lenders that may or may not even work at. So, you know, to be looking at that now, like that's a last resort strategy once you've looked at all the other options and whether you even needed to do that um, sounds really strange. So I think that's a bit of a concern, you know, trying to, you know, understanding your maximum, um, that's a really thing, important thing to do. But we, we only look at that maximum once we know exactly what your situation is, once we've looked at all your um, your income and your debts and um, then we kind of do a full strategy and we figure out what that number is. We want to know that is because if that maximum is not enough, well, then we've got issues, right? Then we potentially have to change your strategy or et cetera. But if you go, look, my maximum is a million dollars, but I only want to buy 500,000. Well, you go, at least you know peace of mind that it's also good for you to know where your maximum is because you know that you know, if you're buying well within that, then you're buying well within what a bank would lend you. So it should be more affordable for you. It should be more comfortable for you. Whereas if you're trying to, by by borrow more than your maximum, you can see we maybe you're kind of trying to stretch it, you know. And is are you potentially taking on more uh, too much debt? And absolutely, they're red flags, right? What you really want to do is make sure they're looking at your situation first, figuring out where your goals are, what your strategy is, and then looking um, and trying to build a lending strategy. It's the same thing as if you're approaching a buyer's agent, for yeah. example. If you go to a buyer's agent, maybe if you're looking to buy an investment property and they say, oh, I've got one for you here, that here's a location that's going to boom or here's an off-the-plan property that's great and they're giving you the product or they're giving you the strategy before they've asked you any questions about your personal situation, very much so a red flag. And further to that, the fact that this broker didn't understand anything about certain government schemes that were Mm. available or coming up, didn't understand or was applying the right stamp duty in that state. That is probably like the the 101 of mortgage broking, right? Being able to give that information and give it confidently and correctly. The same way that if you are approaching a a conveyancer or a buyer's agent or a building inspector or, or anyone in the property professional industry, they need to be an expert in their field. If you are paying them for advice or if you're getting advice from them, you need to have the confidence 
and comfort, they are giving you the correct advice. That being said, we in within this podcast, we always recommend self-education, right? Because if you don't know what you don't know, if someone says something to you, they might say it with confidence, but it might not be correct. So all the more reason why when you're going into speaking with a broker or speaking with any professional, educate yourself first so that you can question things, especially if it doesn't sound quite right. And don't just take it verbatim because sometimes professionals aren't right. You're right. With the government schemes and stamp duty, look, we have clients buying nationally, right? And it's a state-based um, situation. And these things are changing a lot with housing unaffordability, you know, in Victoria, um, you know, and some of these products brokers can't do. For example, a lot of these shared equity schemes, you've got to go direct through just a few banks like CBA and Bank Australia, et cetera. Um, and, you know, and the rules around 5% the government home loans are changing in a few weeks' time, et cetera. And so what I personally advise any clients who – is looking at their state and looking and speaking to these, you know, the um, Office of State Revenue or looking at the scheme in detail and giving them a call and just making sure do you qualify. Um, and then when you do apply for that scheme, for example, um, don't bank it until you actually get it approved. Um, and that's what, you know, the 5% deposit schemes you can get. You know, I just think you've got to – they are tricky. There's lots of different caveats to it. Um, we absolutely try to make sure that we're not lodging a loan unless we know it's going to get approved. But, um, yeah, there is a bit of a process where you you also then, you know, give the organisation a call just to be certain that, you know, you've thought it through and you are eligible to no stamp duty um, or you are eligible for the 5% deposit schemes. And so – um, yeah, it is a complex thing. And I think, you know, brokers, instead of just forgetting about it, they just need to highlight it and say, look, we do need to explore this. Can you please make these calls? Can you please be certain that you can get this stamp duty exemption or whatever it might be? That's right. Well, they should be aware that it exists. They should be able to help you figure out what you are eligible or not. And if they can't assist you with that specific program, they could at least direct you to where you should be going. So exactly. giving you that information. And this person has essentially said, am I expecting too much from a mortgage broker? Chris, what should someone be expecting when they first have an initial meeting with a mortgage broker? Look, I think that, you know, the mortgage broking industry is about 19,000 brokers and, um, you know, not all of those brokers are doing lots and lots of loans. Um, and, you know, there is a bit of a 90-10 or an 80-20 where, you know, 80% of the loans are going through 20% of the brokers or something like that. And so um, you do need to be quite active in, you know, as a broker because things are changing so fast, you know, unless you're lodging quite a lot of, um, you know, helping a lot of people and seeing a lot of things. Um, so I, I would just say that um, absolutely I think you should expect a really high level for seeing a mortgage broker. And if you don't get that experience, go somewhere else because not all 19,000 brokers are equal. Um, and I would just say keep looking for a broker that is offering you a service that you do truly value because there are great ones out there. Um, unfortunately, you might have to go to a few to get that. Um, but I, I, you know, it's part of what we do as a business and, um, you know, through our aggregator and through just education like this, what we want to do is increase the level of why you go to a broker. You don't go for products, you go for trusted advice, you go for guidance, you go for a sounding board, you go for someone to guide you through that whole home purchasing process from a finance point of view um, and to sort of point, point out things that you need to think of and stop you making any silly decisions and point you into the directions of great buyers agents, you know, to, to help you with that decision. And so the broking industry is absolutely moving into more of a trusted advisor profession, um, but it still has to get out of its transactional mindset, which it seems like this broker is stuck in. 
Yeah, that's right. And I'll often have clients where at the very beginning, they'll approach me and they'll say, Amy, can you recommend a mortgage broker? And I absolutely can. But sometimes they'll come to me and they've already spoken to a mortgage broker. And in some cases, they'll be happy. But other times they'll say to me, look, I've spoken to someone and I've gone down the path of, you know, submitting some paperwork or having a couple of chats with them but I'm just not feeling quite right Mm. about the situation. And then we need to figure out, well, what's not feeling right? In some situations, they felt like maybe because they weren't purchasing with a high amount, they weren't prioritised because that broker was not receiving as much Mm. of a commission as someone else. Or in some situations, they felt a bit patronised because they were a first home buyer. They didn't feel comfortable asking essentially any question they felt like there was silly questions. So that broker made them feel uncomfortable about that. Mm. Or I recently had a situation where the client had gone through the pre-approval process and there were quite a few data errors in information that came back. Mm. And they felt really uncomfortable about that because they were worried that at some point that they those errors would cause issues down the track. Mm. So if you're not satisfied in any way, and whether that be the communication, whether that be you not feeling like you can talk to this person and trust this person or um, or their back, their systems are not good or there are errors, then you should potentially consider moving on. And the last part of this person's question was, how do I find another broker? What is the etiquette or the process for leaving this person? And further to that, can I demand that they destroy all of the personal information that I've given them? Yes, yeah, so they'll go on the second part first. So around personal information, absolutely. If you haven't lodged a bank application, you could ask them to destroy everything they've got in file. Um, and um, yeah, and absolutely, that's that's your right, your data, right? If you've lodged a loan application with the bank, though, the broker is also now obligated to retain your data for up to six years, I believe, um, after you lodge. So, you know, they have like compliance requirements to keep those documents. So it really depends on whether you've lodged or not. Um, look, the etiquette around leaving a broker, um, look, we are massive fans of the broking industry. 70% of loans go through brokers, right? So that's because it's been a success story. But brokers are also doing much better today than they were five years ago. And the reason for that is consumers demand better service, right? And so if you're not feeling great service from this broker, you're absolutely well within your right to go and seek a better service, right? And um, I think there is a bit of a, um, I, I do think feedback's really valuable for the broker. And once you've found your better broker is to say, look, I did decided not to use you and these are the reason why. Um, and uh, and that gives them the learning, at least that brings awareness to them. Look, broker industry generally works on a goodwill basis, right? I'll provide a lot of value to you. I'll help you with your numbers. I'll get you approved at the bank. Um, if you purchase, we'll go to another bank. I'll do all that under good faith that um, when you do purchase that you will use us for the finance um, and you won't then at the last minute go and use your friend who's a broker and um, they just get the loan, but they've done none of the heavy listing, which could sometimes be years of work that they haven't been paid for. So there is that sort of fine line there. But So if you do feel really early on, don't drag them on till the 11th hour and then snipe them at the end and go and use someone else. (laughs) Probably start when you get those warning signs, go and find a better broker and start investing in them. Um, And that better broker might give you some new ideas, you know, it might change your strategy. You might be going down the wrong path. And so, um, because if you've already seen those warning signs, there might be actual issues with their strategy. And don't compare brokers on rate. You know, the reality is every bank wants to work with every broker. And so every broker's pretty much got access to every bank, you know, within a very small difference, right? 
and we can all get the best rates across all those lenders, et cetera. Compare them on that service, compare them on that strategy, compare them on the um, how they're adding value to your situation rather than just you know the product selection and the rate um, because the best brokers do so much there um, rather than just say, hey, you should use NAB and your rate's 5.4%. Um, let me know when you purchased. Um, and so, yeah, um, yeah, demand a great service. And if not, then just communicate back to them and, and find someone better. And Chris, in that situation, just say you had actually gotten to the point where you had a pre-approval yeah. with or through a mortgage broker. And this was a situation where that client who had the data entry errors, they did actually have a pre-approval in place, but they still decided that they wanted to go to another mortgage broker in those situations once that pre-approval is lodged, does that actually change the etiquette or process of you having to move on to another broker or not really? Not really. Like, you know, this, 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 the broker hasn't really won you as a client unless their service has been through the whole service, right? And so if you're finding issues, even after you've lodged a pre-approval, I would definitely be upfront with that broker once you found a better broker, right, is to say, look, I know we did a pre-approval. I know you've done a lot of work, but these are the issues I wasn't happy with um, and I wish you all the best because, you know, what happens is um, when you go to a new broker, like we do a credit check, it's called a soft check. You don't actually affect their credit rating, but we'll, we can see they've lodged applications with different brokers. And one of our first question is what happened? You know, what, why did you go to, and sometimes people shoot themselves in the foot here, not because they, you know, meant to it's just that they've gone to an online lender then they've gone to a broker then they've gone to a bank and then all of a sudden their credit credit files got all these applications when um and if we've already see a pre-approval with a, another broker or at a bank we just really want to know is that pre-approval valid we'll do our full assessment to say look there's going to be no issues with another pre-approval but we're not going to lodge it because we don't want to affect your credit file um and we'll lodge that um formal loan approval um, once you do purchase, there's no point adding, you know, doing more pre-approvals just for the sake of it. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Even if you've got a pre-approval, there's no, you can't, but definitely communicate with the broker. I think that's just, it allows that person to grow um, and, you know, allows them to, you know, know, oh, we just didn't, you know, cause there, there's a lot of work they've done, but if they then know, well, that work was great because I got a learning out of it. Um, I didn't just lose that client and I didn't know why. Yeah, exactly right. And communi communication is key with everything. I've had situations in the past where I've had clients who have worked with a mortgage broker and they just felt like things weren't quite right. And it did actually cause issues down the track. So Chris, if you're interviewing a mortgage broker, or you're going through that pre-approval process, what are the kind of questions or what are the kind of things which you should be asking that mortgage broker to give you the confidence that they're actually doing their job and giving you the right recommendations? I think it's really wise for people to understand this is that a lot of the banks don't make much money on pre-approvals, right? Because you think about it, they have to look at all your application, they have to get a human assessor on it, they have to make sure they have to get approval by credit. You know, it's a lot of um, work, right? And then that goes into a queue. Um, and that, per that the only bank only get paid if you end up buying and if you end up deciding to use that bank. So a lot of banks have decided not to do pre-approvals. And if they are going to do pre-approval, they do what you call automated um, bank you know, um, technology, basically, it's not humanly assessed. Nothing's been checked. They just look at your facts and figures that you put in and then they just say whether you can borrow the money or not. Those pre-approvals are not worth the paper they're written on, especially if you've got anything curly to do with your situation like casual income or bonus income or self-employed or, you know, it's a higher LVR, et cetera, like that. So, you know, they're not pre-approvals. Um, we don't do those pre-approvals for clients. 
we only do humanly assessed because there's no point doing it otherwise, right? And so it's a really good learning. Look, in terms of trying to pick the right broker, look, I think initially, um, you know, experience does matter, right? Because they need to know, you know, all the, you know, we, we hire loan strategists, right? Um, Kat joined us a few weeks ago. You know, she was telling me, I haven't, you know, obviously haven't seen everything yet. And it was really, because there's all these curly situations. And, you know, most loans, you, you think they're vanilla, but then something pops up with their situation where you've got to go and check bank policy and, I think where you want, you know, with a broker, you do want someone who is maybe doing it multiple years, you know, has written quite a lot of loans, has got a bit of a team around them because if they have just, if it's just them, it's very easy to have, you know, lots of spinning plates each day. You're dealing with bank policy, you're lodging loans, you're doing new customers, you've got referral partners, you know, there's so many different things and you can basically get lost in their process. Um, and, you know, when you do buy, there's a real time frame. It might be four weeks or six weeks. Um, and you just need to have confidence that the brokers, you're going to make that not uh, very stressful. So I'd say experience, a team, um, you know, uh, you know, great to deal with, um, you know, confidence, more of a trust. They're not trying to just validate what you do. It does challenge you on your thinking. Um, you know, is obviously licensed through a, you know, a decent aggregator, um, which you can find, but most, most of them, it's quite a small industry anyway. Yeah. And, and relationships with other professionals, like know the process can really talk you through the process. Um, you know, feel like you can ask them questions. That's a big one. Um, you know, we, we absolutely uh, think questions are a great idea because what it does, is it, you can really, from the question, you can understand where their thinking's at and what's the the dots they don't understand. And so then I'm thinking, okay, if they're asking that question, maybe they don't really understand how an offset account works or maybe they don't really understand how lending capacity works. And so you can, that education process just gives them that real clarity. Um, or, you know, they don't understand the process when they do buy, you know, how does it they go from a pre-approval to a formal approval to loan docs to settling. Um, and so brokers should be very skilled at talking that through because they've done lots of loans. Um, and Chris, I remember how do you know what questions to ask as a first home buyer? If you don't know what you don't know, what, can you give us some examples? For example, would you say that as a, as a um, first home buyer or a property buyer, you should always actually ask, is this pre-approval a fully assessed pre-approval, is that something you should be checking? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a great question, right? I think that we're the first home buyer. I think what you really want to do is go, what are my options, right, with lending? You know, option one, if I borrowed 80%. Option two, what happens if I pay a bit of lender's mortgage insurance? What happens if I borrowed at 90% or 86%? Like, how does that change things? And so I would say, like, what are my options? Is there any banks that do, you know, 85%, you know, um, and you know, a bigger loan with a, and I don't have to pay lenders mortgage insurance, or is there any benefits, you know, of my employment, you know, if I'm a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, et cetera. So I think what you really want to do is, uh, you know, with first home buyers, it's about sort of understanding what options you've got. Um, you know, should I consider a guarantor loan, you know? Um, and so that's the sort of questions, you know, a broker that goes straight to solution mode and say, this is the best option for you without exploring other options for first-home buyers like paying LMI, guarantor loans, um, you know, et cetera. I think that's where a good broker, you know, looks at those options and explains, you know, how different purchase price and different deposits and, and different borrowing capacities. Um, so I think yeah. it's fair to say that not only should you be asking as many questions as you can, but that mortgage broker should mm. ideally be asking you lots of questions about your situation, about what you're trying to achieve going forward, about different creative ways where maybe you could borrow a little bit more and then put more in your emergency fund if that's yep. something that's really of value to you. And I have had many clients in the past who 
didn't understand that a guarantor loan, a parental or a family security guarantee was actually an option for them Mm. until they listened to one of my podcasts or read something online. And then they went back to their mortgage broker and said, hey, what about this? And the broker said, oh, okay, well, we can explore that. So it really needs to be a two-sided street here. You asking lots of questions and them asking a lot of questions as well. The next question, Chris, is from Billy. The question just says, serviceability and just started my own business. So I'm just going to elaborate on that question on behalf of Billy, which is essentially if you're in a situation where you aren't PAYG, and what we mean by PAYG, pay as you go, is you're essentially receiving a salary. So you're receiving a paycheck every single week. And it's generally the most straightforward situation when it comes to applying for a loan. But if your situation isn't as straightforward, if you are self-employed, if you are working casually, if you receive bonuses or commissions or essentially anything that isn't PAYG, how does a lender look at that? How do they assess that? And how much harder does it make it for you to, to get a loan? What should you be considering? So absolutely, Amy, you've hit the nail on the head, right? So banks have different rates, but they also have different um, income policies, right? And have different asset policies and, um, you know, different servicing, you know, uh, calculators, et cetera. So when you're looking at someone's situation as a good broker, is they're saying, okay, looking at this person's situation, what banks are going to look at them more favorably than other banks? Um, Some banks would say, look, I don't want to lend to this person. You know, they've been had a job, casual job for three weeks. We're not going to look at that income. You know, a casual income is one of those things where a lot of banks don't want to look at it, you know, unless you've had a few months, right? Um, but, you know, absolutely, that's what a great broker does. You know, with self-employed, um, you know, some banks will want to see, you know, two really good years financials and some banks will just be saying, well, what what did you do last year? And is that sustainable? Can you provide a bit of notes um, and clarity on, you know, the business plan, et cetera? So, Great brokers will look at your situation and go, look, what's the bank going to like really like you as a customer? So, you know, and things like bonus, you know, some banks will look at it, you know, if you've had one year of bonus or some banks will look at commissions if you've had it for one year. Some will want to see two years, uh, et cetera. So it does vary bank to bank. Look, there is um, there is also a risk on and a risk off um, appetite with banks. They change policies all the time. If you're in, say, for example, COVID, you know, trying to borrow money self-employed was ridiculously tough, you know, um, and, you know, lots of industries and lots of casual and contracts and, you know, banks got really nervous around this lending. And also APRA was putting pressure on them because they're saying, is it responsible to lend money in this climate to people who have potentially got jobs in different professions that might not have a job or can't have an income? And so it does change. At the moment, I would say it's a risk on time, right? So, you know, there's innovation around self-employed people where, you know, even if they're uh, business isn't making much income, for example, or making much profit, um, they'll use your salary if you've been paying that for the last six or 12 months. You know, that didn't exist 12 months ago, et cetera. So I think whenever you've got that curlier situation, it's sort of going to a broker and going, okay, this is how my situation's changed. I've got, I've taken this role that's a big bonus or it's a big commission or I'm thinking about starting this business or I've got this business. How can I want to borrow money? What can I do to look, make myself look more favorably in the bank's eyes? Um, there are like additional options like um, low doc loans and, um, you know, where what you, does that uh, mean, Chris? Well, they're basically things where uh, you might not have been in business that long. Um, 
and accountants are willing to, you know, give you letters to say that you've got certain um, income and certain trading. Um, and the problem is, though, you start stepping away from the banks. You start stepping more likely into non-banks where you've got higher risks and, uh, you know, in terms of rates going up, you've got bigger deposits you need, et cetera. Um, and that's not a great place to be. And it's really the last resort. If you really desperately need to borrow money, and you don't look great for you know the banks because you haven't been in business that long, your profits aren't still growing, or it's a loss-making business. Um, there's these low doc lenders, but you know it's really the last resort. You really want to say, what can I put? How can I put myself in a position to where the mass market banks will want to appeal to me um, and they want to take me on as a customer? Um, and so yeah, it, it is a is a bit of a minefield this space, and you can easily shoot yourself in the foot. You can go yeah. from a job where you've you know you've got a bonus and you've got an income. Um, and any bank will lend to you. You start a business the next day and you might not be able to borrow money for a couple of years. And, so. and all the more reason why if you are planning on starting a business or, or changing your income situation and you are wanting to buy a property in the near future to speak to a broker at the start and find out how that might impact you. I had a situation where when I had started my own business and I wanted to apply for a new loan and my mortgage broker was fantastic. They actually figured out which lender was open to taking me on. I didn't have the full two years of financials, but they also wrote a really thorough cover letter and they wrote a massive letter. They got evidence from my accountant. They used the fact that I was in a business which I had previously already worked in for seven years prior. And all of those reasons, it was essentially creating like a, a case to put forward to that lender to say, yes, this person doesn't technically tick your boxes of requiring two years of financial, but here's all of the reasons why she is a low-risk borrower and why you should lend money to her. So having a broker to understand which lenders to approach, but then also putting your application together in a way that's going to make it most favourable, that service is invaluable in my opinion. Absolutely. So what that broker is doing there is is really smart because what they're in there in a, a loan application, there's a space for notes, right? And what you want to do is when a credit assessor picks up a file, yeah, they've got the documents there, but what they'll first do is look at the notes. And when they read those notes, if they're really well-crafted, they've really thought through if all the documents are there, the assessor's already thinking, I want to approve this loan. This broker knows what they're doing. There's this, this person, yeah, there were some issues, but they've talked around those issues. You know, there was an issue with casual employment, but, you know, they've been doing that job for six years and it's, you know, a new job. So they're not going to get um, issues with redundancy or not going to, um, you know, have a job, et cetera. So absolutely. You can also talk through those issues with credit prior to lodging the application and say, oh, look, I spoke to credit. I spoke to, to Johnny and Johnny said, look, as long as we have these documents on this date, um, he said that would be fine. I got my BDM's approval for this loan um, and he also or he, she spoke to credit, et cetera. So yeah, great brokers get their notes right because that increases the likelihood of the loan. If it's got some curly, curly birds to it, um, getting it through the assessors. And Chris, I kind of liken this to the situation where you're applying for a rental property. I worked in leasing over 10 years ago and I would receive, you know, dozens of applications on a Monday morning for properties and the applications who had filled everything in correctly and who had provided a cover letter with explanatory notes around why there was maybe gaps in their rental history or explaining their income situation a little bit more, well, they just naturally went to the top of my pile in terms of the preferences of people who I was going to look into, made my job easier. And it's the same when you're trying to get a loan. So you're wanting to make it as 
clear and easy for that assessor as possible and providing extra evidence. Now, Chris, the last question that we are going to cover today, and I think we should deep dive a little bit into this because it is a topic which I think there's a lot of misconceptions Mm. around, which is offset accounts. So Marty McFly says, I know an offset account reduces the amount of interest that's payable on a home loan each month. However, I'd just like to clarify, does an offset account actually reduce the interest balance for the life of a loan or is it just a mechanism which provides relief and flexibility by reducing interest repayments each month? And when I first went to apply for a home loan many, many years ago, I was under the same impression that this person had as well. I knew that offset accounts reduced the interest payable, but I thought that that would actually reduce my monthly mortgage repayment. So reduce the amount that I was actually having to pay each month, but that's not actually the case. So if you were explaining to me, Chris, I don't know if you go on Reddit at all, but there's a subreddit called explain it to me like I'm five. So Chris, pretend pretend I'm five years old and explain offset accounts to me in a really basic way. And then I'll ask you a few extra questions. So what an offset account is, is it's a transactional savings account that you can set up if you've got a home loan. And what that bank will do is link that transactional account to your home loan, right? And so what happens is, is you might have a loan of 500000 and you have $50,000 in this offset account. And what a bank does is every day it calculates interest, right? So it says, look, how much money is in the offset account today? How much money do you owe us? Well, you owe us 500, you got 50. So we'll charge you interest on that day at 450,000, right? Now it doesn't charge you interest on a daily basis. It charges you interest every month. But an offset account, if it's you know one of the newer offset accounts, which pretty much every single bank offers, will offset your loan completely each day and reduce the amount of interest you pay on that day. So if you, for example, the next day you woke up and you put $10,000 in the offset account, that day you would pay interest on $10,000 less because that money was in an offset account. So there is a misconception that they don't fully offset, for example, but that's what an offset account is. Um, And it's not something you, uh, every loan offers, you know, it's generally one of these called package loans that a bank offers. Some of the basic um, loan offers don't have offset accounts. They allow you to do something which is similar, but you pay your loan down um, and that, you know, reduces your interest by paying your loan down. So, Chris, if I have a $500,000 loan and have $50,000 in my offset account, I'm only paying interest on $450,000. But each month, are my interest repayments going to be less because I have money in my offset account? And if not, why not? And how am I actually saving interest in the long run? Why is that beneficial? So what happens is when a bank looks at your mortgage repayment, they assume that you've got no money in the offset account. So let's say for your $500,000 loan in this scenario, your repayments were $4,000 a month. It probably wouldn't be that much, right? Um, And in that $4,000 a month of repayment, some of that's for principal, you know, let's say $3,000, and $1,000 of that is to cover the interest on that loan. So you pay your $4,000 a month, and $1,000 of that goes to cover the interest and $3,000 of that actually reduces your loan. So your loan at the end of the month goes from 500000 down to 497000 not 496 because you lost $1,000 of interest. But when the bank does their interest calculation, if you had money in your offset account for that month, they say, well, we can't charge you $1,000 of interest. 
we can only charge you $900 because you had money in your offset account, right? So your repayment would still be $4,000, but instead of losing $1,000 of interest at the end of the month, you would only lose $900 and your loan would actually decrease faster. So your loan would actually be, instead of being $500 down to $497, it would actually be $496,900, actually be $100 less. Um, your loan would be at the end of the month because you paid $100 less interest. So one of the issues with offset accounts is, is that, yes, you have money in your offset account, so you um, are saving interest, but that doesn't mean your repayment reduces. Your repayment stays the same, but ultimately you pay less interest, which means you pay down your debt faster. Um, and over the longer term, you know, by paying your debt down faster, it means you pay less interest. And so it does have this compounding effect and you will pay less interest over the life of the loan because ultimately you're paying less interest every day. And then that interest means you can pay your mortgage off faster, pay your mortgage off faster, means you pay less interest, et cetera. Yeah. So just to add on to that, in theory, if you had $500,000 in your offset account and a $500,000 loan, you're still going to be paying that mortgage repayment each month. But all of that is going to be paying down the principal and you're not paying any interest. So by paying less interest over the long run, whether you've got $10,000 or $100,000 in that offset account, what that also means is that you are paying off that loan much faster. Yeah. So instead of paying off that loan over 30 years, it might take you 28 years or 22 years. The more money you have in there, the quicker that you'll pay off that loan. So to answer this person's question, you're not actually reducing your mortgage repayments per month, but the proportion that you are paying down on the principal of that loan is higher the more money yeah. that you have in that offset account. So you're paying less interest in the longer run. It's not necessarily going to help your cash flows now, but it will absolutely later on because you'll pay that loan off faster. So that's a better way to think about this. And it also means that for every day that goes by, whatever money you can put into that offset account, even though you're not going to be noticing it now, in the longer run, because that interest is calculated daily, it will all add up and it will compound on itself down the track and it'll save you quite a lot of money. There's some really amazing calculators online. If you just Google offset calculator, and there's a couple of lenders where if you type in, say, you put an extra $500 a month into yep. your offset account, it will show you how much interest you save over the life of that loan and will also show you how many years you'll shave off it as well. I love these calculators. They're so yep. powerful to show you even small incremental amounts can make such a difference in the long run. Yeah. So what are the things just to re remind people here is that as long as that money stays in the offset account, then that will be paying off your loan. Where the issue with offset accounts get is when people put their money in the offset account, and then they start drawing money out of the offset and they start using it like their lifestyle account and their spending account. And what ends up happening is their offset account doesn't go up each month, it potentially goes down, and they're not actually paying their mortgages off and they're not paying less interest because they keep spending the money. And so that's the behavioral where it goes wrong. The best situation is you have a small spending account where you do your day-to-day -day spending out and pretty much all your other money is straight away after you get paid goes into this offset account because then that money is fully offsetting that debt straight away and you're doing your day-to-day -day spending on a small amount that you pay yourself each month. And that's where we see the best um, behavioral, you know, and long-term saving happens is when people disconnect their lifestyle spending from their offset account. Um, 
and really just try to put in as much in their offset account each month. And don't don't forget what the bank's um, repayment is. You just say, look, if in our situation we earn $10,000 a month as a couple, we can save $6,000 or $5,000. We're just going to put $5,000 straight away from our pay into the offset account. And then the other four or $5,000, we're going to live off and pay all our bills and, and things like that. And just assuming that the mortgage repayment is less than the five or $6,000 that they put in the offset account, each month they'll be getting further and further ahead because they're paying off their loan faster than what the bank um, tells them to. So, Chris, ultimately it does require a fair bit of self-control to make sure that if you are utilising an offset account to not be tempted to just constantly be spending all of that money and really make it work for you. And why would you use an offset account rather than just paying down your loan over time? What are the key benefits of using that offset account if they're essentially doing the same thing as paying down your home loan? Look, it comes down to sort of getting access to that money when you need it. So like in case of emergencies, you know, you potentially you could do it if you do something called redraw, like some banks will allow you to get access to redraw really easily. Um, some banks put limits on them. But the issue is bank policy can change around redraw. They, there's there's rules around the way the loan contract is structured is it's, you know, you're paying off a loan redrawing on that money isn't as guaranteed as if that money's in a savings account, a transactional account, that's your money. It's not the bank's money. And so you've got, you know, confidence that, you know, if something happens in the future and you need to borrow that money or use that money, I mean, the money's there. The second reason is, is you're not paying down to potentially future deductible debt. So it's a bit of a tax issue where you might buy your first home, you buy well within your means, you smash that property down, you really get on top of that debt. Five, six years later, you say, oh, I'd really love to upgrade from this apartment into a house and you paid the property off, which we've seen this situation numerous times um, and they want to keep that place as an investment property. And it's really hard to justify because it's got no deductible debt um, and they would have to borrow fully against that property for their future home and have this huge non-deductible debt for their home. And so if someone did actually go for an offset account in that situation, they may have the ability to potentially keep it as an investment property from a tax point of view. It might make sense. So Chris, if you are considering even remotely changing that property to an investment property in the future, always uh, speak to your mortgage broker or lender about the pros and cons of an offset account versus redraw and paying that loan down just so that you can get prepared at the start And it makes it so much easier rather than having to then go and refinance or change things later on or just not be able to then claim that that tax deductible debt. So offset accounts can be really amazing if you use them right. And all the more reason why kind of the moral of this whole episode is to have a really great mortgage broker so that you can sit down with them at the beginning and find out if the products that they are offering you have offset accounts. Not every loan Mm. has the opportunity to have an offset account. They also can come with fees and charges. So needing to make sure that they're worthwhile for you and just running through all of your options with a mortgage broker and making sure you really understand all of this. If you get to the end of the conversation, you still don't quite understand how it works. Get them to draw some diagrams, get them to really Mm. workshop it with you because you will ultimately be the one who is living with this loan and Mm. living with this mortgage in the long term. So you need to get the right one and you need to understand how it actually works. Absolutely. My final thing is that, you know, the loans under 500,000, let's just call it, maybe it's a bit less than that, but you're more likely to um, want to consider a loan that's not got an offset accounts because, you know, there might be a three, $400 fee, uh, you know, that you might be able to get in a slightly, uh, 
lower interest rate than a package loan, et cetera, because it's not a bigger loan. Um, so that's where they're more suitable, suitable. But the issue with basic loans is a lot of them have got introductory rates. And, you know, you're not getting this great deal for the life of the loan. You might be getting it for one or two years. You might have to go to, a, um, you know, issues with uh, you won't get repricing on it. It might be hard. It might be online lenders, et cetera. So there are issues with you going around the basic loans. You don't get a lot of the guarantees that a lot of the package loans, the offset account loans that you get, um, you know, that might be a little bit more expensive, but they protect you a little bit better as well. So. Hopefully Great. that was um if you've got any more questions around offset account, is a difficult copy. And what you say, Amy, is very true. Um, I'm a bit of a drawer as well when I'm with clients, and um, I think it's really powerful to really explain it and um and to and even draw it for yourself to understand how the land, the borrowing structure works. We do these little graphs for clients that you know this is how your repayments will all work and shuffle around once you settle because um yeah, people sometimes are very visual and it really helps to explain it. Yeah, absolutely. So key takeaway messages for today, Chris, is that you should always expect fantastic customer service with any professional that you go to, no matter how much you earn or no matter how much you're borrowing. That is completely fair enough. You also need to make sure that you go armed with questions and you clarify anything that you're unsure about and also ensure that your mortgage broker or any professional that you're working with asks you questions as well so that they are tailoring their advice to your situation. And if you're uncomfortable in any way with the professional that you have engaged, please make sure that you communicate that with them and find someone else who you do have better rapport with and you do feel more comfortable with their advice, no matter who you are working with in the property industry, mortgage brokers, conveyances, buyers, advocates, et cetera. And then also learn about offset accounts, learn about redraws, learn about the pros and cons of each and work with your mortgage broker to figure out what the best option is for you. We absolutely love these listener questions coming through. So please click the links in the show notes if you would like your questions answered on the episode. And thanks so much, Chris, today. Your insight as a incredibly experienced mortgage broker is always invaluable. Awesome to chat, Amy. And uh, thanks for the interview. It was um, a great convo. And yeah, keep sending your questions through and we'll, we'll talk to you all soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax, or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. 
designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.